G'day all, welcome to the Hardly Adequate Podcast. My name's Desi and I'm also one of the current co-hosts with Sai for the Forensic Focus Podcast. I'm launching this along with YouTube videos and other content to help those learn about uh, cybersecurity, in particular in the defensive space. This week we're joined with uh, a, an old friend of mine from way back in military days, Sam Freeman or Freo, uh, who's also... Uh, co-administrator with me on the hardly adequate server at the moment. But thanks for joining us, Freo. Welcome. Yeah, no dramas at all. Happy to be here. Great, mate. Well, I know, so we're recording on a Sunday at the moment, but one of the first questions that I, I like to dig into is, is what is a normal day like? Yeah. So, you know, being a Sunday, it's no, no work today. No, yeah. today is one of those days that I'm on call. Um, so that could change at the drop of a hat and we, we may have to push things off, <laughs> um, which does go into some of the nature of like how, you know, some things in cybersecurity may be. So some people that do work from nine to five in, in that governance and risk compliance space. Um, I know pen testers and incident response and um, security analysts in SOCs, they typically work those 24-7 hour shifts or on calls yeah. um, or yeah. have to do weekend work. So it really varies. Um, but look, like in terms of a typical work day, um, that's sort of, you know, jumping out of bed, going straight for coffee, as as is tradition <laughs> in most <Yep>. IT jobs. <laughs> We're all driven by caffeine a little bit. <laughs> yep, definitely. Uh, yeah, from, from there, it's it's mostly like catching up with my colleagues, seeing out seeing what, what's on the, the desk for the day, um, which does vary from time to time. Um, from there, it might be a case of either doing some client calls and giving them a bit of a catch up as to where we are in a given investigation, mm -hmm. or perhaps uh, reaching out to some new clients and having some of those more difficult discussions where we need to figure out, hey, what, what happened in your cyber incident, um, or having a discussion with lawyers around privacy um, and reporting obligations if there's been a data breach or something like that. Mm or maybe just going full nerd and going straight into an investigation, which to me is my favorite kind of days. I, I love when <laughs> yeah. I, I wake up and I know, okay, today is just a full on an analysis day. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's what I love. I, as much as I love talking to people, I, I still love being able to nerd out. Yeah. Nerd, nerding out on those tools and, and finding the, finding the bad guys and what they did. Right. Like it's what we live for. That's exactly it. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's roughly what a, what a work day would look like. Um, yeah. you know, at, at the end of the day, it's roughly that in reverse, it's summarizing what we found today, mm -hmm. um, which is a really critical piece for particularly in, in DFIR space. You, you want to make sure you, for me personally, like even before getting an incident response, I like leaving things in a logical place. Mm. So I don't have to come back next day and, and sort of rediscover where I'm at, mm. which for me means I work weird hours. Some days I'll work like a nine hour day, the next hour day, it might be six because I, I know I need to get to that logical place. And luckily mm. I've got a workplace who supports that for me as well. So before we jump more into, I guess, the, where you are in cyber and, and how you got there, well, I guess what we want to talk about how you got there is, is what job were you doing before you kind of got into what you considered cybersecurity uh, and, and what was the kind of turning point decision for you? Like what, what drove you towards moving to, to working in this uh, career space? Yeah, so I had a bit of a weird path into cybersecurity, as I, I say to people when they ask me this question. Um, I, 
it might not be necessarily weird when you actually have a look at a few veterans, but um, I started in infantry in Air Force um, with that physical security background, mm -hmm. um, being first and foremost. Um, being a little bit of a, a nerd, that wasn't necessarily the best place for me, <laughs> but it was it was still really beneficial in building some of the social skills, which I might not have if I didn't have that experience mm. too. So um, from there, a couple of years in, I, I realized, hey, IT is the thing I want to do. Um, so I ended up working with like radio systems and IT systems for, for that infantry unit and mm -hmm. loved it so much. That's when I decided to train jobs. Um, and it was during that job change during our initial training in around 2014 or so mm. where so we as IT were sort of starting to teach cybersecurity and, hey, there's this there's this cool thing in cybersecurity. So it kept on being this theme that kept on coming up during our training, which is this is how you deploy something, but this is how you deploy it securely. And it was from there I sort of I, – I really liked talking about those things on my training – um, and I knew that that was something I wanted to do longer term once I'd consolidated my systems administrator stuff. So I always kept it in the back of my mind, sort of working on projects in the, on the job wherever I could to sort of understand where I could harden systems, work with governance and risk compliance to make our systems more secure, doing some of those, you know, an annoying jobs. Then from there, I, I managed to actually secure a, a position where I started working with you in a in a cybersecurity unit. Yeah. And that's that's really where I went from there. Like, that's where I went really deep from there where there's a, a few things of, like, self-study and that sort of thing, which we can discuss soon. Yeah. And I, I think, like, your path stands out in a way that when people traditionally think of, of cybersecurity, and I, and I don't think this is accurate for a lot of people because people come from, from all walks of life into this career, whether they've been in the industry for ages and, and transitioned, but that, that traditional... You were working in IT, which turned into InfoSec, which then turned into cybersecurity, which I think a lot of people, because you see a lot of questions on job boards and stuff where they're like, do I need to do it, go do an, an IT degree or do I need to be a system admin? And um, there's probably a talk later that uh, you'll present and or, or we may have that we'll talk where we discuss that there is definitely benefits to having a background, mm -hmm. but it takes everyone from different viewpoints and, and backgrounds to like make up a team and and the it team does. is what you rely on yeah and even even beyond just the it background that physical security background is actually mm. something i draw upon more than you'd think something with infantry that they do very well is have documentation in an incident scenario to rapidly respond to um yeah. which is something yeah. that i often find our clients don't quite understand that, that they build out these incident response playbooks and they're not there's so there's so much detail in those instant response playbooks, which is great, but there's nothing in there that can just be used short, sharp, and to the point, which is something you you do get having that physical security background too, which I find interesting. So yeah, to to your statement, like having a broad set of experience, like whatever you have previously is going to add benefit into into where we are. I, I've seen people who've come from like administrative assistant roles or um, completely like nothing to do with cybersecurity into cybersecurity and they really do excel based yeah. on the experience they've had previously and it usually comes down to just a want and a passion for wanting mm. to one help people and and two do some cool things in in nerd out <laughs> yeah for sure for sure so so talking about like where you started in infantry and then moving into it 
learned a lot through osmosis on the job. Like there was cyber coming out, you were securing systems that logically leads into moving into a, a cybersecurity unit where, where we met and we, we work together. Um, and then now to where you are here, how, how is like looking back on it, how was that transition for you? Like in terms of uh, self-study courses, mentors, like what, in your mind, what stands out that helped you kind of pivot into this industry? Yeah. So for me, it was, I, I had a bit of a self-starter. So I've always loved computers ever since mm. I was a kid. Luckily enough, before I even joined the military, I had a, a small business that I helped administer who had an active directory server. Yep. And it was there that I just, I, I learned computers by breaking them and then having to fix them <laughs> because, you know, either my boss or my, my dad used to, be like, you broke it, go fix yeah. it. Yeah. That's literally how I learned things. And this was in a stage where we didn't have such accessible things like good courses and YouTube. So mm. a lot of it was just testing and playing around with things and seeing what would happen, which is sort of still really a, something I do today. A lot of the things we do in incident response when we're talking about artifact types, um, for example, I have a case at the moment where I actually have to go do test cases to go mm. see if something works because there's no documentation on it. So it has to be like sort of that scientific method. So a lot of where I did, I, I didn't really do a lot of, of formal study until I started at university in uh, 2016, where I identified I wanted to jump into cybersecurity. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the degree was more a way of getting, showing that I had interest, uh, just, just with some formal study, even though I was doing things myself. So the, the the first year of the uni degree was really beneficial because mm-hmm. it filled in some of those computer science and programming gaps that I don't have as a systems administrator. System administrators, like we learn, you know, the basics of what an architecture of a computer is, but not a lot of programming and mm. things down to the... It's more it's like, more scripting, right? Like you, you learn how to automate, but you don't understand how to create in a sense. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. So... That was that was really useful, and that was a really useful bridge as part of my formal study, which I probably wouldn't have found just just by myself. Interestingly, I thought when I went into my degree, I'd absolutely hate programming, um, <laughs> but I have. It turns out I actually really enjoy it. Yeah, yeah. Um, when things eventually work, you're like, "This is amazing." Exactly. Yeah. yeah. You spent so long you know, debugging with the bugs and finding what isn't working, then all of a sudden <laughs> you have something. It might be the biggest bodge you've found, but yeah. it works. Yeah. <laughs> 90% of programming's the debugging after you've written your code, right? Like it's it's that troubleshooting yeah. to actually get it to do what you want it to do rather than spit out an error message. Yeah, yeah. So, look, I think, I think having a bit of that background at university uh, while I was working in industry, mm-hmm. I've almost had a really lucky scenario where I've had what I've called just-in-time learning, where I've learned key concepts and actually been able to apply them on the job, yeah. and use the terminology I've learned to actually ask the right people the right questions at the right time, Yeah, which, is then, which then led to me making projects while I was on the job to show that I had some sort of competence, be that some sort of hardening. Mm. Uh, in my own time, I've, I've developed my own like firewall and, and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Played around with that for years. Still don't, haven't got it 100% perfect. <laughs> but, you know, um, having that infrastructure, like having a little bit of a, a lab in your own environment can help out where people are asking basic questions. Like mm. I, I've had ones like, what's an IP block list and how do I do that? A lot of companies 
just pay for something like Fortigate or Cisco that just mm-hmm. has all that out of the box. But some people actually want to know, hey, how does that work? So Yeah, how to manage it once it's in, right? That's, that's yeah, key. Yeah, so you guide them through something like PFSense and, and go, well, here you go. Here's, here's what I did to learn how that works and all the mm-hmm. false positives it get and how how break how much it can break your network in a way particularly when you're just doing things like at home like gaming and that sort of thing yeah so there's a bit of frustration and learning but you learn a lot by just having to go through and debug that sort of thing which gives you that under understanding so i want to i want to dive into the your degree in a, in a little bit um but going back to your comment around you started learning by like doing the admin for a company and, and breaking things and testing, like noting that the revolution of YouTube and the amount of learning that you can get from that these days is amazing. But is there anything from back then that you broke that you just couldn't fix? And it was just like an oh shit moment where you're like, I've really screwed this part up. Look, there was definitely times where I thought I'd hit that point, <laughs> but I think for some reason I just hit the lucky the lucky bell and didn't break things too badly. Okay. Uh, maybe, yep. maybe it was the case that my dad let me go and build my own PC before we got to that stage. Um, <laughs> yep. Or you know, I, I I started to take a bit more of a risk based approach, maybe naturally, but yeah, you know, luckily I didn't get to that point. Um, yeah, I think the only time, funnily enough, the the only time where my my playing around actually got me in trouble was when I was at school, and I ended up doing some nefarious things, as you do when you when you're younger. <laughs> when you have some knowledge and you you test it out, kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, tested out some things in a school setting, and it ended up having a teacher with a thousand dollars of printing printing credit. As debt, which I thought was hilarious because uh, I could print for free. She had a thousand dollars of debt until we got caught, and and that was when we learned. Yeah, maybe maybe we need to be a bit more careful about how we do things and that sort of thing. <laughs> nice, yeah. nice. So so going back to your your degree, like you said, you learned quite a lot in your first year. Mm. Looking back on it now, because I know you're you're close to finishing. Like you've got a few like semesters or, or terms left before you're done. Yep. Do you find that it's still like being in the industry now, like you've been in since 20, I'm trying to remember when you got out of defense, 2017, 2018? Uh, no, no, no. I left defense in like 2021, I think. Oh, okay. So more recent. Yeah. So, so considering like you were there at the cyber squadron with me left in 2021, it's now 2023. How do you find the value of the cybersecurity degree in retrospect? So the first year was very beneficial to me, like those core concepts of programming and even some mathematics stuff, which um, mm. luckily I had a mentor who used to be an SQL database, who I, I think you know, um, and he was sort of explaining to me the importance of why mathematics at university is really important, mm-hmm. um, particularly once you get to databases. And the first and second year had had those elements there. I still use those things today. Mm-hmm. Um, it's only been recently, like when you have large amounts of data, a, a database is the best thing to use. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's no qualms about it. So I feel like the first first year and maybe the second year to a degree um, was quite beneficial. The second year had a lot of electives for me. So I actually chose to go down the criminology side. Uh-huh. Um to sort of, I was like, right, I, I know really well how, well, I think I know kind of well how, how this technical stuff fits together. I think I should broaden out and maybe sort of understand what's the psyche and, and 
the legal side of, of cybersecurity. And those have been my most favorite units in terms of from year two and year three. Okay. Um, unfortunately, it, it, as I've gotten into the final year, I've found a lot of it is not regularly aligned very well to what we need in, in industry right now as skills. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I've had, had to have discussions with my, my academic chair and we sort of butted heads a little bit because of that tension where I can see what I need, what we would really like to see in graduate attributes in industry, but these year three units are not helping prepare. Those first two years, they were absolutely great. And I think they were on track. It's the year three stuff where there's heaps of group work, which I understand the importance of collaboration and that sort of stuff. Mm. Um, But as an external student, group work is very challenging. Like, it's incredibly challenging to get that that group work done remotely with people you've never met um trying to coordinate that around people's lives like you know a lot of these people like me work full-time um and that sort of thing so you know and and then we're learning things and a lot of them have actually commented to me they're like i'm learning more of you by osmosis than i am off the lecturer yeah Um, yeah and i think that's that's something that on the other podcast that i'm on with Sai there's always a gap between industry and, and academics. Um, like we, we see it in the academic conferences that we go to. We see it in, in the courses. Um, you see it in uh, the, like the boot camps that are coming out, that kind of thing. Like you always have this gap because the course could be designed in another part of the world. So the requirements are different anyway, but you're, you're always going to have that gap in that, that section because a lot of the, the, academics that are practical to industry like we've found like interviewing people they get bought up by companies and then it becomes proprietary as well um and the really good operators who could teach this stuff potentially just aren't available because they're working in the industry protecting the community that kind of thing so it's this this balance of talent in the industry versus who's available to to teach and, and be an academic as well which is a gap because the, we're trying to train up so many people to fit into the Australian uh, industry at the moment to, to really upskill us to be a fighting force in that cyberspace, I think. Yeah, look, I, I do agree. And I, I definitely do see that. Like, for example, my most recent lecturer, uh, who will remain completely unnamed, but they're basically studying their doctorate in cybersecurity after coming from a full-time engineering background. And so it's mm-hmm. like you're, you don't necessarily have experience in cybersecurity, but you have experience in other uh, complementing areas. But when we're talking about a cybersecurity unit, you really want to have that subject matter expert in there to keep it almost on the rails on on what we want to see from graduates. Because mm. um, unfortunately, for as much experience as that that person does have on negotiating items with with C suite and that sort of thing really beneficial to once you become a manager, but not so much when you're straight out of university and looking to become yeah. a practitioner. That's sort of where I see like things starting to fall apart is maybe degrees are not focusing on that that layer of a practitioner versus a manager. Yes. And I and I think that's another thing as well. Like there's probably two points here, right? Like a, a lot of people get degrees because management positions require degrees and it may be that those courses are being crafted for that purpose because traditionally that's how industry other industries work. So you you get your technical training, you move up through the company and they're like, hey, if you want to be a manager, you need a, a degree, go get a degree. And the second point is, is 
thinking about uni and the broad scope of what cyber is, it's very hard to train, I think, a, a technical person in a particular area because there's so many nuanced areas, whether it be, like you were saying, GRC, pen testing, DFIR, a SOC analyst, degrees in general, uh, kind of jack of all trades, master of none almost when you're doing that, unless it's a very targeted specific degree, which then you're kind of looking at the boot camps or you're looking at on the job training and, and maybe you're studying a PhD while your company's helping pay for that and support you because you're studying something in particular that's a benefit to the company. Yeah, look, it's a very interesting point you raise. And I think some academics actually know that. So when I was discussing the same unit that I had an issue with, with the, um, the head of discipline, they were basically saying a very similar thing. Like we get a lot of people studying these degrees that we're doing who do work in the, and he quoted niche areas of cybersecurity. Mm -hmm. But I think what he was trying to say is something quite similar where we're, we're, we're teaching people who work in very specialized area of cybersecurity and have mm -hmm. that experience. Yes. They have to complete the core units because that maintains the integrity of our course, mm -hmm. but that might mean that, they they are frustrated with the content because they they don't see from their from their highly specialized view sort of how these units translate what the uni's trying to do is teach everything yeah, as a little bit to everybody and it's it's not an easy problem to solve and and that was something i admitted straight back to them like during that feedback i'm like i don't necessarily have the full on answers for you mm. all i have is to tell you that these are the areas I think would be really beneficial from what I've seen, you know, mm. working in, in the field, um, as it were. Yeah. And I think like looking back, cause I did an engineering degree, um, before I got in, got into the military even. And the biggest benefit that I had was coming out is I could problem solve and I could work in a team. And I think mm -hmm. those are the two attributes that carry across many industries that you can take, um, Similarly in cyber, like if you can work in a team and you can problem solve, and you can read documentation and do all that stuff. Like I, I took that out of engineering. I, I've never used my material science engineering degree in my life where I know the molten states of iron ever. And I don't think I ever will, but that was a core subject. And we did group work there. That was painful as every uni student knows, I think is group work is yeah. always painful. Yeah, look, it, it is similar for me, like the subjects that I dislike somewhat the most, like databases and project management are actually the skills that I use the most on the job every day, because a lot of people don't have those skills. And and those were not units that I personally enjoyed at the time. But looking back retrospectively, given how much they challenged me and actually taught me real things I need on the job now, yeah, uh, retrospectively, I do enjoy them. Yeah. Um, just not at the time. Yeah. <laughs> It's kind of an interesting position for this next question because you are still studying a degree, um, but you're in the industry. And the, the question is around, if you could go back and tell yourself, your pre-cyber self some advice that you think would be beneficial, but place your pre-cyber pre self in today's industry. Mm. So you're, you're trying to get into the industry like uh, many of our listeners might be. What kind of advice would you give to yourself? Um, look, if I... I I think looking back, if, if I was to go back and give advice to my, my younger self, it'd sort of be like, yes, uh, uh, so for me, I was, I was talked out of a master's degree um, because I was told specifically a lot of companies specifically ask for a bachelor's. Uh, mm -hmm. Now, retrospectively, 
because I already had experience in the workplace and a lot of those year one content is actually covered in a master's degree in a bit more detail with a little bit more of an assessment piece, yeah. I'd almost go back and say, if you're already in the workplace, maybe look at doing a graduate cert and a master's because a bachelor is a long, long slog. You know, I'm almost here seven-ish years later still studying a bachelor's, mm. whereas a master's is considered as more powerful. Yeah. Um, and I know from my experience in talking to people, when interviewers look at things, they don't necessarily look at what qualification you've got in terms of university, TAFE or anything. It's the fact of just having one. A bachelor's degree or a master's degree, it, it doesn't necessarily matter. It's a degree. Or even a TAFE diploma, like yeah. something I, I still really like about TAFE, and I, I do have a bias as an ex-workplace assessor, but TAFE, so I, I feel, are really good for practitioners in that yeah. they teach those competency-based learning, which I think as a practitioner is something you actually you want. Uh, whereas universities, uh, they, they do teach you a lot more of the fundamental whys, yeah. um, which is useful later in your career. But just to make a break, don't discount like a TAFE course, just to, yeah. to teach you the terminology and key terms yeah. so you know where to work from from there. And, and that's going to be interesting. So one of the future episodes that we're going to do, I'm, I'm going to be interviewing someone who did go through a TAFE course before transitioning into cyber from a completely different industry. So yeah, look out for that episode to, to kind of get that perspective of, of someone who went through the TAFE course that way. I think a lot of people get very wrapped up in having to have industry certs as well, though. Yeah. That's why we're touching on it. I, I get a lot of people off the street who are like, I can't afford a sand cert. They look at certs like CompTIA, which, look, they're not too bad, but at the end of the day, you don't ne- you don't need to have a cert. A lot of the time, people just want to know, firstly, you're a good fit the fit for the team. Is something that's really important in our in our current workplaces. Can you work in a team first up? Because if you can work in the team, the team can teach you the skills you need to know. Yeah, I will add here, and this is something that I, I've said in previous recordings and, and presentations that I've done, that this is the advice I would give to my high school self going back, but was pick a career and then pick the pathway to get to that career. Because when I was in high school, I was, I was good at mathematics. So I went and did a math degree first. And then I found out there was only like three jobs that I didn't want to do coming out of a math degree. So mm. I then transitioned to engineering and I, I still wasn't really, and, and I kind of fell into military and, and then cyber, which is where I ended up. But I think the same applies to, to cyber when you look at certifications is pick the jobs that you want to go for and then look at their requirements. So while I 100% agree with you, you don't, you don't need a cert, but if you're going for a government job that requires you to have SEC plus, from CompTIA, that's one of CompTIA's courses, then it's an investment in your future and you're investing in, and, and that course isn't too expensive and there's plenty of free training resources and the certs, I think like a couple of hundred dollars to do, but it gives you a good foundation and a lot of government, especially US government jobs still require that cert. But mm. look at what you need to get to where you need to get to for a career and then work backwards from there and then the rest can just be free learning because- like we were talking the other night about the value of renewing certs is, is it really worth it? Like what, what are you getting out of it? What is your client base getting out of it? Like if your work's paying for it, because they want you to be certified under that framework. Great. But personally, the, the question is what's the benefit? Yeah. Yeah. That that is the question. I mean, like 
we, if you are doing still traditional DF cases, I think having those certs valid is still useful for, yeah. for courts and stuff like that to to sort of uh, back up your claim from an independent third party that you you are actually qualified yeah. in your field. So it could be fine. required by a standard, right? Like you could, exactly. it could be you have to be certified to this regardless. Yeah. So, and that's why I think governments. So, if you are looking for like a government agency or, or policing agency, that's where those certifications and keeping them current does come a lot more into play. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think your advice is really good. Um, but also, equally, don't be afraid of picking the wrong career path too. Like, weird way to yeah. get there. And I'd probably do that all again. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay, I was the nerd in, in a football club, so to speak, when I was working in infantry. Yeah. But the soft skills I got from that are actually really beneficial. So don't be afraid of... St- you, you don't need to get it right the first time. Yeah. Um, I think that's the main thing. Like you can always change. That's yeah. that's quite okay. I think that's the beauty of cybersecurity in itself is is that it is a new industry and people are coming from all walks of life. And that's the point of this series is to understand where everyone's come from and have those backgrounds and understand how they, they all work together. But it applies in general to all careers. Like, mm. like I know people late in their life effectively left – a high paying job to then go study to be a doctor and then you're a doctor. So it doesn't matter what it is like follow. It's kind of like that, follow your passion to a degree and figure out what you want to do. If you're not happy where you are. Yeah, no, I totally agree. We've talked a lot about kind of like the roles that you've been in and the interests, but I guess it'll be good just to go through and define the areas within cyber that you think you've been part of. So thinking like, sysadmin, GRC, pen testing, DFIR, like sysadmin, admittedly, that's a little bit outside cyber, but it's still, I guess, I think it's under the umbrella of like the broader, like when people think cybersecurity, there's probably like five jobs Mm. that people think of, but broadly you need a a team of a lot of people to secure an organization. So um, I'd be keen to just get your view on where you think that you've worked on, even if it's been courses where you, have delved into pen testing and that kind of thing as well. Yeah, look, so pen testing is probably the skill that I, I, I'm least good at. Uh, I can do script kitty based sort of stuff to help make a, a CTF or something yep. like that. But um, outside of the the stuff I've done with you and a little bit of hack the box, it's not it's not the skill that I'm the best at. Yep. And, and that was something I think I admitted really early on to myself. I'm like, that's a really good skill to have, but I think I've got a bit more of knowledge from my sysadmin side, so I don't feel like I need to focus as mm. heavily on that mm-hmm. um, in terms of a, a specialization, like useful skill to have and sort of understand, particularly when you need to emulate an attack chain. Yeah. But it's not, it's by far not the best thing I've done. I think for me, the, the areas that I've been a part of, so as, as a sysadmin, I was more closely aligned with the GRC side of the house, um, doing security architecting to make sure you were compliant with a, a given framework, mm-hmm. um, but more focused on the technical implementation side, which is that side of the house I think we'll discuss in a, in a future episode that we're, where you've got a bit of disconnect between what what cybersecurity professionals might say and, and what a sysadmin can and cannot do. Yeah, um, yeah. Different, the, differing priorities and, and abilities, right? Yeah, yeah. In summary, like very briefly, the 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 priority for me as a sysadmin is my users and uptime. Yeah. Um, security is there, and it is something there for me. But at the end of the day, cybersecurity is 
not necessarily my priority because it's not the client who's calling me up saying I can't access something yeah, uh, and interrupting that, that work that they need to do to yeah. generate revenue for the company. Yeah. Um, so that's his own niche thing, but I, I still think a lot of the, the security architect side um, is very beneficial for GRC. Um, yeah. As well as DFIR, it has its place there too. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's sort of where I felt I touched on that. Um, and then Differ is is probably the, the main area now that I, I, I've sort of chosen mm. to focus in. Um, so I reached, uh, once I did my training with you, um, I thought I actually really wanted to go down the digital forensics just component space yeah. through, through yeah. law enforcement. Um, so I spent about six-ish months with law enforcement there mm-hmm. um, before deciding that that career path wasn't necessarily for me, but that was more because of I've already done a certain amount in the military and I, and I took a, sort of took a step back and said, is the exposures that I'm going to see from things in that field something I want to do mm. um, or is that is that something that maybe, maybe I've already done my time for, yeah. for that sort of thing? Yeah. Um, I, t- I took the decision on the ladder, um, but DF is still a very interesting field. Um, mm. And it's still a re- like some of the DF careers that you can get through policing is a really nice entry into cybersecurity too. Yeah. Um, noting when I found, when I worked in law enforcement, there's still a bit of a disconnect between DF and cybersecurity. There's almost like a bit of this and them in there yeah. um, in that, they they thought that DF wasn't cybersecurity, whereas it is. Yeah. <laughs> like I found that really weird coming from a cybersecurity background into that and having that really weird thing. And I was tr- sort of trying to to build those relationships between the two. But yeah, it was, now it's been digital forensics and innocent response where um, as, a, as a DFI analyst in my current company and for other companies I've spoken to, it's still a little bit of everything. Um, we still have a little bit of GRC, as I'm sure you're aware too. Like mm. you, you have a little bit of GRC in your job. Every now and then, as we, we touched on there, you still have that little bit of pen testing because you need to lab up something that you've seen yeah. that threats to do, but you don't understand what they did. So you need to rebuild that attack chain that they did. I think that DFIR is probably the most broad cybersecurity field because you need to do a little bit of both, but but still be an expert in the the evidence that you're looking at. Yeah, ever ever changing landscape, and it, it's good to hear you say that pen testing is is something that early on you knew that it wasn't your your specialty, and it wasn't perhaps something that you were ever going to specialize in because you had these other skill sets to do the job that you need to do. Particularly because I think a couple of years back going around within the industry and an outward facing industry. Like I saw a lot in, in talks that were just like, Oh, if you want to be good at, at DFIR, you have to be good at attacking as well. And I, and I don't think that's the case. Like, I think you need to be good at reading technical blogs and understanding the attack beat. You don't necessarily need to be good at doing anything. Like that's, you need to be good at the you- artifact collection and, and understanding what those artifacts mean. Yeah, particularly if you're in a larger organization, like you have yeah. members of your team who are specialists in that. And you can always go ask, like mm-hmm. I, I've spoken with the, the pen testers in my own organization and they are really, really knowledgeable. Mm. Like I, I could produce something, but they're going to do it in 
they're just going to know it off the top of their head. Yeah. So just having that discussion is going to save, save that time anyway. Like so the, the longer I spend in the industry, the more I realize, uh, particularly in DFIR, yes, we do do a little bit of those things, but there's so much benefits in collaborating with your colleagues who do that every day because something that might take you a day, two days, they know off the top of their head. Yeah. And that's where that, that team side comes in. So yeah. Um, yeah. the other side on pen testing, I, I, saw, I almost had a bit of a statement there in that I, I've always sought a challenge. Um, I, I like cybersecurity because in my career, I, I've always looked for that next challenge. Mm. And I've always viewed the, personally, I viewed defensive as more challenging than offensive because mm. offensive, you need to find one hole and breach that hole. Whereas a defensive role, you need to find all the holes and try and find a way of monitoring or defending yeah. against that. Like, yeah. um, I feel like that, that means it's more challenging and I, I'm, I'm sure some people would disagree with me, but that's, that's my always been my viewpoint on it. Yeah. I, I think it also for us, so we, we work together for a little bit um, at your current company and I think uh, it's external facing. So you, as an instant responder, you're coming in from the external, not really knowing the network and you come across new technologies all the time where it may be like some weird log source that you need to figure out and they have, weird configurations and there's politics that you're dealing with. And, and that's definitely where that difficulty stems from. And I think there's differing, there would be differing opinions if you were external versus internal, because if you're an internal, then you know, your network, you would defend it really well. And you could say on that flip side, then pen testing externally could be hard because you don't know the network and you're constantly coming across new technologies. So I think there's, there's balances and scales in, in all kind of job roles and that each has its own niche and, mm-hmm. and you can always move to that next level where you just become more specialized and more broad in your skill set. But uh, yeah, you don't need to know each one in depth. You just kind of need to be good at what you do and, and be able to adapt is I think the important thing. Look to borrow, borrow some stuff from, uh, from my infantry days, be brilliant at the basics and the rest yeah. of us follow from there. Like- yeah. The, the, I, I really found when I started in my field, I was surrounded by people who were absolute experts in their field, mm. um, and really good at it. And I, I wanted to be that. I wanted to be all of them all at once. And the longer I've sat there, I'm like, well, no, I've actually got my own thing here. I think yeah. the common thing we all have here is we're, we're good at the basics. Yeah. And then people have specialized from there and it's okay to not have to know everything. In yeah. DFI, you can't. Like we change, I chop and change different case types every week, every month, that yeah. sort of thing. Like I'll have a month really heavy on one case type like ransomware. The next one, it's business email compromises. Yeah, yeah. They're very different investigation styles and their skills fade just between those two investigations. Yeah. So I, I actually just don't think it's, I'm sure there's people out there who can, but I don't personally think that there's that much room in the human brain to keep a track of being a <laughs> absolutely everything like that outside of, you know, experience and that sort of thing. Yeah. Well, I, like I guess special being a specialist means you're, you're good at one thing mm-hmm. and that's, you could maybe be good at two things like really niche fields, but you definitely kind of tap out at, at that because you're right. Like you can only retain so much knowledge, so much, so much information. Um, and it, it's interesting to hear that from you because 
like when I first met you, like I was just like, man, this guy is an awesome sysadmin, like securing system. And back then I knew nothing about like Active Directory, securing systems, that kind of thing. But it's it's interesting again, like that's why you've got the team because everyone has their their own skill set that complements each other. And, and when you're built, if you're a manager building a team, you need that diversity. You can't have yeah. five people that are really good at digital forensics, Windows artifacts, and then you get a Linux case because then you mm. fall over, right? Yeah, that's exactly it. Um, and, and the longer I've sat in, the more I realize that too. Mm. Um, and that's that's been a bit of a, a lesson in hardship too, because I sort of stressed myself out over over that as I've gone through. Yeah. And I've realized all that stress was not really worth it. Like, yeah. if you have your thing, own it. Like, yeah. I have yeah. my thing as as on premises admin stuff. And yeah, look, I I personally acknowledge that on prem AD is slowly going the way um more and more for non-government organizations who are moving to cloud so that doesn't that doesn't necessarily mean complacency mm. um i've started learning the the cloud side of the house as well so like yeah. you are in particular is probably the one i'm strongest at yeah um but i've recently done a cloud course because i know that the, the longer time goes on the more i'm going to have to translate that on-prem sysadmin stuff to its equivalent in cloud yeah. Yeah. Just a brief one in between this and the next question, like shout out to the people who I've reached out to that I want to interview. If you're in the industry, like know that this is a common sentiment. Like we all struggle with, I guess, the label of imposter syndrome, but understanding that your story is interesting to someone, like someone will connect to to the story that you have, like to the story that, that Sam has and, and Brendan last week and the future people that we get on. Um, we all come from different pathways and have those different specialties. To caveat that, like I had an incident a few months ago where I, I was it to to go and sit in front of a, a series of executives essentially and help them yeah. own their risk and, and help them make decisions. Mm-hmm. I had a massive amount of imposter syndrome. I don't have the link on me right now, but I, I remember finding an Instagram post around the same time from a developer yeah. who was talking about he's had 32 years of experience and he still gets imposter syndrome. Yeah. And he's actually said, that's a good thing because that keeps us on our toes. Yeah. Like keeps that, us that learning. Shows you, exactly. It shows that you are always keeping learning. And he, he was actually of the opposite sort of framework that not having imposter syndrome is potentially the dangerous thing. Maybe having imposter syndrome was the good thing. Yeah. Um, really good for me to see at that time. Yeah. Um, like, I, I did so I did like intro to psychology at uni and there's very few things that stuck stuck in my mind about that course but one was there is definitely a, a healthy healthy level of anxiety because it it gives you the ability of clarity of thought uh, and the ability to self-assess really well when you have that and and it can definitely go away like as you get more proficient at whatever you're doing but as a whole of a feeling, it's always there. Like it's a human reaction to doing something new that you probably didn't have as a kid. Cause as a kid, you're daily learning new things, trying new things. But as an adult, we lose that memory of that. So trying something new is, is scary. Like it's, it's always scary starting something new and not being good at it. That, like it sucks. Yeah. Yeah, it does. But often you'll walk away from the experience surprising yourself too. Yeah. You actually do no more than you thought you did going into that incident, which which helps build your confidence. Yeah, yeah, um, for sure. So I guess that's like it's really good to hear like how diverse 
your role currently is, and, and you've had the law enforcement digital forensics background and you've had the, the military background, what's been your favorite role? Like, where do you think, and it doesn't have to be your current role, like that, that can be fine, or it can be a very niche part of your current role, but what do you look back fondly on and what do you look forward to um, if it's still something you can do? Yeah, look, it's it's a hard question. Uh, it's this sort of the chicken and egg sort of question. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, I think for me at the moment, like if I was to say one thing, I I, I think I'll, I'll change the the way the question is. So if there's one role I miss, it is still that a little bit of that sysadmin side. I really do love nerding out and and solving out the, those problems, uh, administering random systems and finding the the holes in there that were introduced by Jimmy 20 years ago, never documented <laughs> it, and you need to figure out how it works. And you sort of scratching your head going. <laughs> you've broken the system so badly, which has this flow on effect to all these other things. How, how am I actually going to attack this problem? Um, so I definitely miss that sort of sysadmin side. Can I just add to that, that Jimmy has also left the company while you're doing this. And when you ask anyone around, they're just like, it's the way it's always been. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. So look, that, that is a, that is definitely a, a thing that I miss. I think in terms of yeah, I, I'm still going to break down the question in a different, couple of different ways. So in terms of one of the favorite organizations I work for, I actually really enjoyed my time in law enforcement. Yeah, um, okay. That was one of the most supportive organizations, surprisingly, um, one of the most supporting organizations I, I worked for who really did put their people 100% first mm-hmm. and casework second. Mm-hmm. Um, that that might have just been that particular agency uh, that I worked for. You know, when I've spoken to people about my my time and experience there, I've said if you want proper work life balance, like yes, that does come with the trade off of you're you're going. You have to admit to yourself you are going to see things that most people don't see, and that may change your views on on how the world works and that sort of thing. But there's so many support mechanisms in place noting that challenging work um, that I walked away really enjoying my time in that organization nice. for that yeah. for that sort of stuff. Um, and, and maybe long-term I, I may go back there. That that's, that's, you know, that that's comes down to that question. That's really positive for anyone that is considering a, a, a career into, into law enforcement. Um, yeah. Knowing, yeah, knowing that if you're going down that pathway, that it is going to be super support, knowing, knowing that it, it, it probably, like you mentioned, like it is quite particular because, of the sensitive material that you may be exposed to as well. Yeah. I mean, you see sides of humans that you just, as a normal person, you wouldn't, you wouldn't see. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember being in a, in a particular uh, sort of onboarding workshop with a team member who had recently had children and you could really see the impacts of the work that she did and how she viewed the world. Um, and luckily that was called out in that workshop and that person yeah. had a little yeah. bit more awareness of that, but it's just something to like, it's a really good role, but it's something that isn't necessarily spoken about. And even to the military, to some degrees, I think with the military, it's a lot more expected that you, you are, you are going into that role, uh, and seeing uncomfortable things, but yeah. in policing, it's not, maybe not as verbose as what it could be for the listeners. Like. What we're broadly touching on here is uh, something that we cover a lot, quite a lot on the other podcasts that I'm on, but CSAM, so Child Sexual 
uh, exploitation material is is what we're talking about, um, which used to be called something else, but it it has been renamed into something more appropriate for the horrific nature of, of what it is. But um, yeah, law law enforcement that's that's kind of the consideration that you're making, um, which will be part of your onboarding, part of your recruiting kind of thing. That um, like I, you you would have had to go through like psych assessments and and that kind of thing to get into that role. Yeah, for, yeah, yeah. I, I definitely did. Mm. Um, I, I and I think the thing to call out there is knowing that that's going to be a large part of your job. So part of my study at uni actually spoke about criminology and the reason why police have to focus so many resources on it because. Like, so you and I, for example, look at that crime type as probably a pretty erroneous crime, right? Like that's an outrage and we want the police to stop that, which means the police have to put a lot of resources into that, which means yeah. other crime types may not get as, as much, much attention and resources. And yeah. Attention. yeah. And, and that's one of the reasons why law enforcement now, because everybody has a mobile phone, everybody has a laptop, DF is like police are screaming for digital forensics practitioners because everybody's got that. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the investigators that they have don't necessarily have that, that knowledge on how to preserve and, and look at those devices without yeah. potentially modifying really critical data to the case. So. Yeah. Like, I think this is a nice point to, to point out as well is DFIR is a really cool career to get into, but it does require, especially digital forensics in the, in the law space, when we're talking about standards and, and court admissibility, like you need to make sure you're not making mistakes, but it is a quite study intensive job to get into because you need to, like you were saying with mobile phones, like a lot of the work may be mobile phone forensics, but there's not many courses on on mobile phone Mm. forensics in terms of learning off the bat. So even when you get into the job, there's a long lead time to, to be specialized to then be able to perform that role. Yeah. And the organization helps build you to that Mm. level. And that was something I really liked. Um, I think for for somebody straight out of university or something like that, that's a really good career field to to go for because they do build you with so much underpinning knowledge. But for me, as somebody who already had experience, I personally found that a little bit frustrating having to go back again when I've already done that a couple of times. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, but favorite favorite role. Look, I, I still really love what I do right now in terms of corporate DFIR. Um, for me, I really love helping our our community and our organization, which is one of the reasons I went for military and and law enforcement. And it sort of surprised me as to how well the organization I work for now um, does that. And it's something yeah. that they really really value as well, which is yeah. one of the reasons. I, I love working with them yeah. Um, because we don't just investigate incidents. We also talk about helping people and, and how yeah. we can help them prevent these incidents again in the future, which, yeah. is, which is good. That yeah. comes with some challenges in terms of people communication and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and that's, that, that's probably leading into a, a future question for you. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess like we, we spoke about your passion for sysadmin and, and I believe you mentioned like right up, the top like some of the things that you worked on but what kind of passion projects do you have at the moment and those can be cyber or, or otherwise like i i've already learned from the previous episode uh brendan had some really interesting uh side hustle and hobbies that he was doing um and it's it's always interesting to see because i think everyone in this field is eccentric to a certain level in their own way in what they're interested in uh just the different hobbies that they pick up 
Yeah, yeah. So um, I think like if, for when I was getting into cybersecurity, a lot of my project was PFSense and, and learning how to configure that and secure that and, and do all that sort of thing, build all the things off that. Nowadays, it's um, probably a lot more, uh, I do a project just in time in, in terms of if I find something at work, I like giving back to the community that helped me get to there. Uh, so I try to, where I find issues in open source projects, I really love like trying to contribute there, um, often coming across eccentric personalities from time to time, but that's okay. Um, that's part of the course. That's that's one of the reasons why Linus Travolta's made GitHub, so he didn't have to speak to people. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, like I look, I've the longer, the more coding I've learned, the more I I enjoy both not only just writing code, but potentially also just writing a blog on something I've I've found if I can. Yeah, yeah. Um, obviously, when, once you're in the workplace, that can be a little bit more challenging. Um, so you know, that, that, that might slow down. Yeah. Um, but a lot of the things I've been doing recently is just quality of life improvements on open source projects. Yeah. Um, so just trying to match outputs between different forensics tools, mm-hmm. um, which would help adoption with other agencies like law enforcement and that sort of side of the house too. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's really what I enjoy noting that I'm still studying at uni. So yeah, it takes up have, bulk of your yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah, so something yeah. that's really important to me as a value is work-life balance. So yes, it's good to have these projects and that sort of thing, but I try to do them in my work time because I still have that that yeah. study commitment from uni as well. So yeah, yeah, and I I know like we'll we'll link this in the show notes, but you have your own. I uh, I think it's it, it runs on GitHub, right? Your your technical blog um, that you started way back when I think we were both in defense, um, and I've definitely used that for like when I've forgotten how to do things and I, I know it exists there. And and I think it's a good starting point for a lot of people if they, yeah, the if they don't know the much, fun, right? The funniest thing with that blog is the one that gets uh, probably used the most for me and has actually been called out in other podcasts is the Excel one, um, which I always find really funny because it's based on discussions you Mate. and I had around Excel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Excel is the greatest DFIR tool ever made. It really is. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Why use a database when you can use Excel? Mate, Excel is a database. It's just a, a text one. <laughs> it is. Um, but yeah, yeah, look, I've I've linked some of the so, you know, some of the things I do have in my blog, I haven't finished off. And I, I note that. It's yep. I'll get to it when I get to it. It's sort of I'll get to it when I need to get to it because I still have that study load on the side. So but yeah, there's definitely pieces in there that can help you learn terminology and artifacts and yeah, I think when when I got into DFR, the biggest challenge that I had was knowing the keywords to search for. So finding mm. people's blogs like mine or Alex's or anyone in DFR and finding what artifacts are called. Um, mm. like you'll hear people in DFR talk about random these random things called like shell bags, AMK, event logs, all these things. Like yeah. knowing what those are. It, so for me, like a lot of the time now, if I'm searching for something in DFIR, I know in Google I will get a lot of noise if I don't tag in the capital and quotation marks DFIR. Um, that then gives me what I'm actually looking for because I think you touched on it yesterday. A lot of people in DFIR make these tools to pass artifacts, but with really random names like things like scalpel or um, random names like that that you wouldn't necessarily find if you didn't have that extra syntax there. Mm. 
so from here, like you, you're finishing uni probably within the next six to 12 months, right? That's, that's uh, the, the goal or is it a bit longer? It's a couple of years. Cause I do one year at a semester. Again, right. that work life balances and the hobby of, of, of gaming as well as cybersecurity. So yeah. it's important to have work life balance. So I actually go out and step away from my computer and, mm. and go outside and do hikes and go look at weird things like mushrooms, et cetera. Yeah, go and, <laughs> go and touch some grass. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. The question is framed around like what's the next six to 12 months for you, but maybe a better question is what do you want to aim for if you thought about it after the uni has freed up some more of your time? Like is, is there another thing that you're moving on to next or you, you just kind of think you're going to chill out a little bit, like do the, do the work and then figure out where you want to go from there? So I, I still have a goal in the next six to 12 months that, that, that I'm working towards. But again, like, as I said to you, it, it comes more in that, that workspace side yeah. of the house. Um, and that for me is, is uh, particularly after COVID, I've, I've noticed a bit of my communication skills have dropped off there. Mm-hmm. So it's still working around that client communication. So um, one of the challenges for me coming in from government centric agencies is understanding the commercial side and mm-hmm. it's sort of my biggest goal at the moment is learning that commercial side because that should fill in the last bit of the gap for me in terms of progression in, in my industry at the moment. Right. Um, so talking to clients, getting more experience on various case types and that sort of thing and, and almost feeling we, we spoke about the imposter syndrome and that's still always going to be thing, but having enough experience to comfortably sit there with most organization types and actually just, have a chat with them and, and, and yeah. get them ready to speak about their incident. Yeah. Um, that's, that's the biggest thing I'm working towards post university, probably a little bit of a break. Um, but then it will likely be, I would, I would really like to actually have one of these projects like you've discussed that you actually do work towards from time to time. Yeah. Um, but I think first up, it's just going to be a bit of a break. <laughs> Definitely understand. I, I think when I, when I finish uni, and I wasn't like I was working part time back then, but I just took like two weeks off and like laid on the couch and did nothing for two weeks except like game constantly, yep. just because it's it's a huge relief. Want to turn back the clock to when you were a little kid, uh, maybe like six or seven, and thinking about what did you aspire to be when you wanted to grow up? Now, like for me, that was I wanted to be uh, a firefighter. And then I saw how much fitness they had to do. And I was like, man, that's a lot of work to pass those initial tests. And I was like, yeah, not for me. I'm, I guess, develop my love of computers and, and other things. I I am still that classic Air Force boy of I wanted to be a pilot. And right. I still love all things aviation. I yeah. don't really want to admit how many hours I have in flight sim. I think every time I jump on Discord every now and then and I see that you're online and it's just like, Frio's in Microsoft Flight Sim. Yeah, Flight Sim or Star Citizen or some sort of simulator. Yeah, um, uh, yeah I always wanted to be a pilot. Um, and unfortunately, I didn't do well enough in physics in, in year 12 because I, I didn't 
understand mathematics. Like I, I, I missed one piece of algebra on the way towards learning there, uh, mm. which was the order of operations. If you, if you know mathematics, I, I completely misinterpreted that because I had different teachers te- tell me different ways. Right. Uh, and it wasn't until I studied mathematics again as a mature age student. And I, I used Khan Academy and stepped through piece by piece from like elementary school up yeah. to high school yeah. where I found that one concept that I didn't know being the order of operations and how it properly worked. And then everything in mathematics all of a sudden became easy. Right. Um, so that was, that was really weird as a mature age student. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that sort of, that sort of broke me down as a kid. And then from there I was like, what do I want to do? I didn't know, which is why I went infantry. Um, yeah. And then, I, I, as I said, I, as a kid, I always fiddled around with computers and that sort of thing. So that was a natural fit for me. Yeah. Um, I think one of the things that I'm cautious of is I enjoy computers and I didn't want to necessarily want to work in that full time. Cause I know if sometimes when you work in full time, it takes away the passion for it, but luckily that hasn't happened. So. Yeah. So that's, that's really interesting. I guess moving on, like now we, like, I guess we've spoken a little bit about your work-life balance, but what do you do for entertainment to work, to, to unwind from, from your weeks on the weekend? And also, I guess, study, because it, it's almost like a part-time job doing a mm. university study. So I'm interested just like, what's the Netflix show that you're binging or, or you're out doing hikes or, and you've mentioned the games that you're into, but yeah, just keen to kind of touch on that so that people yeah. can un- understand what you do to unwind. So look, I, I've never really been a huge movie slash TV person. Mm-hmm. Um, I do still, you know, binge out on seasons from time to time. There was some, a really good CIA was on Netflix recently, which I absolutely nerded out on. Um, there's, you know, a, a lot of the, the classic, nerd ones like uh your your mandalorian and um star trek discovery which is yeah for sure yeah (laughs) um it other hobbies though like i I, as i said i I do spend a lot of time gaming um really weird when you spend all day on a computer to keep sitting there gaming but i i do enjoy those sim games um when i'm not doing multiplayer ones with my mates um I also still go out and enjoy cooking. Like cooking is still a big passion of mine. Oh yeah. Um, so that's, you know, that's something I, I like to do to sort of relax and create something, um, sort of take advantage a bit of that artistic side, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah, going out doing hikes and seeing things locally. I'm, I'm really lucky where I live at the moment. It, it, nature is very accessible to me. So, you know, going out and having a look at, random trees or mushrooms or yeah, that yeah. sort of thing and just getting back in touch with nature, which I think as somebody who works in IT is so important. Yeah. <laughs> um, One of the few good things about uh, South Australia is that nature is mm. accessible. Um, yeah. People people will come to know that I don't like South Australia that much, but um, <laughs> that's another story for another time. Yeah, you certainly don't. But um, <laughs> I'll come back to visit. I just don't want to live there again. That's, that's okay. But I, I think, yeah, I, I'm really lucky where I am because I, like I have uh, the beaches pretty close to me, um, but also like some really nice coastline that gets like seals and whales. Yeah. Sort of thing yeah. That's nearby. The penguins like down South as well. You've got that little Island that they come and sleep yeah, on. They're, they're not too far away. Yeah. Um, 
my partner, she she absolutely nerds out on mushrooms. So, you know, this time of year, we, we're going out on finding those. She's recently learned how to forage them. So yep. we've managed to combine those two hobbies. I cooked up yeah. mushroom risotto for her last night. Nice. Actually forest, forest mushrooms. So. That's really cool. Um, yeah, yeah, just like that's that sort of stuff. I, I also like to get on the bike or do a bit of rock climbing every now and then, probably not as much as I could, but yeah, yeah. Um, I, I still enjoy doing that sort of stuff too. Awesome. This is the, the final question that we've got for, for tonight, but what kind of recommendations do you currently have for people outside the industry considering a change? And, and this could be like a, a course recommendation or it could be uh, maybe like an intrinsic value that you think is really important um, for people that want to change, but just interesting to get your, your view on this. Yeah. So when I, if I had somebody ask me how to get into industry and considering a change, um, I would be turning around and saying, look, firstly, first question, can you, can you work with a team? Can you talk to people? Are you, are you comfortable doing that? And if they're not, maybe going down to your local sec talks and, and having chats to people there and their experiences, mm. something I, as an introvert myself, um, if you're not comfortable doing that, the more you get somebody to talk about themselves, the easier it is for you because they sort of people love talking about themselves. Um, <laughs> so true. Sort of the trick to it. So, but you can find like little pieces there where you can find that piece that you're interested with and build that connection to make a, a decent discussion with them without you having to do too much work. Um, outside of that, on the technical side, I would still say like doing things like hack the box and stuff like that are beneficial, but I still also am going to sit to my little sysadmin heart and say, build your own lab. Um, yeah. Just go through and, and, and have a play with it. And, and I think the key thing is don't be afraid to break things because that's yeah. where, that's where you learn things. A lot of the hesitation I see with people who are junior in either sysadmin or it is they're scared to click something that's going to break it and, <laughs> lose all the work but that's where all the that's where all the lessons are yeah yeah um i'll do a little bit of a a shameless self plug here but definitely the youtube channel is is where i show you from basics how to create stuff and and you will see me make i i don't edit it much so you will see me make plenty of mistakes um in those videos yeah i I like tech bloggers who show or even or even chefs um one of the chefs i I think andy cooks that i watch yeah. On YouTube, I love it when I see people make mistakes. Yeah. Like it's yeah. not edited and it actually shows you're human and it's okay to make a mistake, which yeah. it is. Like, yeah. It's a, I I I've always thought that if it was if something if something you're doing is worthwhile, it should be a challenge. And there should be some times you fail. Yeah. Otherwise if it's easy, you're not actually learning much from it. And I think it it goes back to like we've we've all had it said to us at some point during education, but ask a question because if you've got the question, five other people in the audience have the same question or in the class have the same question. And I think that applies to mistakes as well. Like if you do something, you make a mistake. Like it's the reason that Stack Overflow and Stack Exchange exist is that people make mistakes and they ask people in of the internet, how do I fix this? And um, yeah, it's probably a common problem that you're having or, or something that you just haven't thought about that you need to change. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And 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 look, even from your from your psychology side, you would probably maybe remember that, you know, it is actually a psychological thing that the more challenging something is, the more likely you are to remember it too. Yeah. Um yeah. so 
yeah, breaking things, just just go break all the things, obviously, within <laughs> yeah. reason. Maybe don't go break your own company's network. Yeah, don't break your corporate <laughs> network. But if you've got a test environment, probably probably then it's okay to go nuts and break things. Yeah, and you'll find a lot of the cloud platforms either have, like if you don't have the ability to make a lab yourself, mm. a lot of the cloud platforms do have free trials or yeah. there's some out there that are super cheap to get into as well. Yeah, like yeah. They, they sound like they're going to be really cost, but you walk away with an invoice with like 20 cents for the month. Yeah, yeah. Because um, it's all about leaving them on for a long time, but if you're spinning them up quickly, it's usually pretty cheap. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Well, Freo, it's been a pleasure having you on and talking through your pathway into where you are now and learning all about what makes you tick and, and what helps you unwind. But it's been a pleasure, mate. Thanks for Thanks for joining us tonight. Yeah, no worries at all. Um, hopefully we can chat again in, in the future about some some more sysadmin topics. <laughs> for sure, mate. And that's something for the listeners to look forward to is uh, eventually we'd, we'd love to have Freo back on to, to chat about the benefits of kind of the cross-training between DFIR and sysadmins and, and really dig into that in a show dedicated just to that topic. But Thanks, thanks all. Uh, nearly all of the content will be free, but if you want to support, then make sure you subscribe to the podcast, like and subscribe to the YouTube channel. And if you're feeling charitable, unfortunately not tax deductible, head over to my Buy Me A Coffee to either make a donation or sign up for a membership. All links will be in the show notes, but for a hub of all content, please visit my website, hardlyadequate.com. Thanks for listening and I'll catch you all later on. Bye.